live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 Minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And good evening. Welcome to a brand new two-part series, to which we have invited a very special guest speaker, Rabbi Shraga Feivel Zimman, who I'll be giving a brief intro about later. We're very honored to have you, Rabbi Zimman. Thank you very much for taking out of your valuable time to be with us tonight and enhance the podcast. Rabbi Hirsch, we're going to start with you to give us a bit of a historical background. What subject do we have on tonight? So the topic is a 13th century scholar who everybody has heard of, but nobody knows. Various Roshonim are famous to the average Jew, like the Rambam or Rashi. Some might be known for certain rulings, like Rabbeinu Tam, the Mezuzah, Tfili, in the time of Shabbos. Some are more advanced or only known to the sort of Talmudic scholars, the, the Ritva, the Rashba. But one is known for an event which occurred at the end of his life, towards the end of his life, but really his fame rests on his writings and his enormous influence on halacha to this very day, which are the mainstay of Ashkenazi halacha. He is the Maharam of Rottenberg. So, who was he? The era of Baalei Teisvis, who recorded their notes on the side of the Talmud, was not confined to one country or even one century. It stretched over 200 years. And the Maharam Rubmeir was the last of them. In fact, within a few years of his death, no sages of note would live in Germany probably for more than 50 years because of the persecutions. He was born around 1215 in Worms in Germany to a family of scholars, many of whom, in fact, were leaders in Kehilis. In his responsa, he mentions two uncles and 12 other relatives, all bearing the title Harav, which back then was reserved for scholars of uh, high standing or uh, heads of yeshiva. And Rumeir often quotes their opinions. His father, Raboruch, was a member of the Bezdin of Worms. At the age of 12, he is sent to learn with the Urzeroa in Wurzburg for uh, six years or so. He then goes to Mainz, and finally he goes to France, where he learns under great Baletosvis, such as Rubichil of Paris. And therefore, the Maram was in France in 1240 when his teachers took part in the famous, infamous disputation with the apostate Jew Nicholas Donin regarding the Talmud, which once again will have to be a podcast. And the Maram was still there two years later in 1242 when he witnessed the public burning of many Gomorrahs on which occasion he wrote his Kinnah, Shaili Srufa Ba'ish, which we read on Tishabov. And shortly afterwards, the Maram returned to Germany. Where is Rottenberg? Southern Germany, towards the Rhineland. Now, his 
studies under these distinguished Baletosvas left a major imprint on his Derech Limited way of learning, but so too did the teachings of what are called the, the German pietists, the Hasidei Ashkenaz, such as Rabbi Huda Chosid, his Talmud, the Rekeach, under whom Rameir's father had learnt. And uh, within a few years, uh, Rameir is settled in Rottenburg, and he's there for basically the next 40 years until, until 1286. And students came to his yeshiva from all over Germany and neighboring countries. And his house was probably provided by the Kehillah because it contained 21 rooms, which included a base of medrash and a room as in lodging for his students. And his fame as an authority spread In 1249, there was a serious argument, a dispute between the communities of Bohemia and Moravia regarding payment of taxes, and the matter was referred to him for final settlement, even though he was not yet 35 years old. And for nearly half a century, he was basically the de facto supreme court of appeals for Jews of Germany and Austria. So you have Rabonim and Botte Din sending him their questions, and about a thousand of his answers have survived, which is more than the combined number of all other Bali Toisvis. Well, so I guess we know more about his life as a result. Yes and no. You see, the problem is that that often responses are printed anonymously, which means that all the personal information about the questioner and even the name of the town are being removed. There are exceptions to this, which we'll learn about next week. But yes, we do have some information as a result. Is there a reason why his of all survived? Because he lived at a time where... A lot of questions required to be answered. Once again, we'll get more into the nature of his response, and from that you'll work backwards, so to speak. Now, halacha lemaisa, the things that we do. So, famously, regarding Rosh Hashanah, he is the one that ruled that since there are different opinions whether Rosh Hashanah is considered, whether both days are considered one long day or two separate days, so we can say Shechianu at Kiddush on both nights, but you have to wear a new garment or have a new fruit. That's his halachic ruling. The Tor writes that the Maram ruled that the person should not wear his tzitzis on Shabbos in a public domain because the tzitzis nowadays don't include techeles and therefore potentially the big biblical mitzvah no longer applies. And then the Torah adds, but my father, the Rosh, did wear talus in a public domain on Shabbos even though he was a student of the Maram. Contrary to popular legend, he held no official position during all these years as the head or chief rabbi of German Jewry. He wasn't elected by the communities. He wasn't appointed by the emperor. Although his responsa do reveal a great deal about the Jews of his time, one particularly tragic question came from a Jew in Koblenz who wrote that he had killed his entire family to prevent them falling into the hands of a Christian mob. We will come back to the particulars of that question. The Maram, all in all, wrote 
Tosfus to 18 different tractates of the Talmud. In fact, most of the Tosfus in Yuma are his. And he wrote commentaries to the Mishnah in, in the Mishnahis of Zroim and Taharis. He wrote halachas of the laws of Erevin, of Brochus, of Shechita, wording of Ksuba. He has quite a few responses dealing with uh, Ksubas. So he is an enormous influence in terms of his own writings. Do we know who any of his students are? Many of them became leaders of communities, but actually his most famous students are the ones who wrote. They recorded him and his actions everywhere, at home, in shul, even in prison. Their svarim are uh, the Mordechai, the Hagos Maimonis, the Tashbets, and the Rosh. And between them, they record not only his rulings, but his own particular practices, particularly the Tashbets, who wrote and had his sefer copied in Germany, in Austria, in, in, in Poland, and many of the details were incorporated into the Shulchan Aruch. In fact, by far, the greatest number of decisions of the Ramah in the Code of Jewish Law in Shulchan Aruch stem directly or indirectly from the work and practices of the Maharam. And, you know, his role can hardly be um, overestimated. So one can say he was the transmitter of Ashkenaz tradition. Yes, yes. Although, interestingly, uh, he often quotes the Rambam and the Rif, who are both Svardi. Now, to proceed to the last few years of his life, but an introduction is required first because we need to understand what Germany was like in the 14th century. By 1300, there were probably as many as 100,000 Jews in Germany, 100,000 Ashkenazim. However, during the second half of the 13th century, it was one of the most trying times in all of the Middle Ages for German Jewry, mainly because of Germany's uh, political instability and uh, shifting uh, borders. There was an ongoing struggle between the popes and nobility and, and central government, and that meant that the provinces, the German provinces, were plunged into almost constant political and territorial conflict. The, the German emperors saw themselves as the successors of the Holy Roman Emperor, and the popes claimed that title for themselves, and they responded with, you know, excommunication to, uh, to the emperor. Now, after the interregnum in the 13th century, during which time no single ruler was able to control Germany, uh, Rudolf of Habsburg ascended to the throne as emperor. And as a result, the Maram's uh, peaceful life as a, as a scholar, as a teacher, was abruptly interrupted by these political events because the king began to press the claim that the title, the term, Servi Camerai, which means the Jews being the servants, the serfs of the treasury, that that is the legal description of the status of the Jews, meaning that they were actually slaves. 
and that the person and their possessions were property of the empire. And the king placed very severe restrictions on freedom of movement. He, he forbade the Jews of Speyer, Worms, of Mainz from leaving, from traveling outside their place of residence. And then the tax burden, you know, if all the money is his, then, you know, why not take it? It became so onerous that many Jews attempted to leave Germany illegally. 1939 wasn't a first for these matters. And the Maram was uh, outraged at this attempt to basically enslave the Jews. And he, he either joined or he became the leader of an exodus, We're not quite sure. In the spring of 1286, he sets out to Eretisrol with his family. However, and this part is generally known, while he was in Lombardy, he was recognized by an apostate who informed on him with the result that the ruler of the town arrested the Maram and eventually delivered him over to Rudolf I, who imprisoned him on the, uh, on the 4th of Tammuz 1286 in a fortress in Alsace. And that brings us to the tragically known fate of the Maram, his long captivity and his eventual death in, in prison, because the king demanded an enormous ransom for his release, and the Maram therefore remained imprisoned for seven years. During that time, he continued to, to write his, his commentaries until his death on the 19th of ER in 1293. And as is also quite well known, even after his death, the ruler refused to release his body for burial and another 14 years would elapse before his remains would be brought to a Jewish grave in 1307, following the intervention of Alexander, um, who was the son of Rabshlom of Impfen, who lived in Frankfurt am Main and who had settled in Worms later in life, and who paid an enormous sum for, for this cause, in other words, to, to rebury the, the Maram in a, in, a, in a basic forest. Do we have the writings that he uh, was, was writing in jail? Do, we, do yes. we know of them? Yes, we do. Um, and we have more than that. Um, we have writings of some of his students who were granted access, which we'll come to in a moment. Um, but the, the story of the Maram's imprisonment is told in a number of places that have survived. One is uh, Rav Yehuda, the son of the Rosh, who lived in 14th century Spain. And one is the Marshal in 16th century Poland, uh, both of whom talk about the Maram's imprisonment. But we also have... Um, in 1616, a, uh, an old paper document was found in the Shul in Worms with this narrative. And there are truvas. There's a responser for raising funds for the German king. And perhaps most unusually, a letter written by the Pope to King Rudolf on August the 29th, 1288, where the Pope requested the release of the Maram. But it didn't happen because, as we mentioned, there's all this tension between the Pope and the King and there's a power struggle. Now, the Jews made great efforts to release their, their, their teacher. At one time, they agreed to pay 23,000 pounds in weight of silver to the emperor. Um, but um, he wanted it 
as being tax. In other words, they owed him this money. And um, he wanted them to admit the right of the emperor to tax them. Uh, but this would admit this would really amount to the idea that they were slaves. So it never happened. Um, and um, coming back to your point, he did continue to write. He, he wrote Truvus. He wrote Responsa in jail. Occasionally, he mentions that he doesn't have the you know required text. So he's doing most of this uh, from memory. Um, and therefore, he can't sometimes fully research a particular issue. And if the questioner finds this being addressed elsewhere, then he should follow that, you know, uh, approach rather than the one that the Maram has uh, decided or recommended. How did he manage to smuggle his response out of jail? Surely they wouldn't have let that. So for reasons that we're not entirely clear about, he was occasionally allowed to have visits by two of his main students, the Mordechai and the Hagos Maimonis, who were actually brothers-in-law. Uh, whether this is a result of bribes to the jailers or pressure from other authorities or simply the king wanted to show, wanting to show that his captive was still alive, you know, it, it's unclear. We do know that the Rosh didn't visit him and probably had a low profile for a number of years in Germany because he was basically next on the kidnapping list. And we have from the Maram himself, he, for instance, he carried on writing his, uh, his commentary to Taharus in jail, to those Mishnayas. And there is a chapter of Mishnayas called A Castle That Is Suspended in the Air. And the Maram comments on it that he wrote his commentary on these Mishnayas while he was in a castle suspended in the air, so to speak. We also find on one occasion that the Maram was uh, very cold in his prison cell on the Shabbos and a non-Jew was permitted uh, halakhically to add wood to the fire and one of his students was with him who uh, records this for us. Now, clearly, although he was allowed these visits, for the majority of the seven years, he was, uh, I mean, clearly unable to daven in the minion, to be with others on the Yontif. We don't know quite what happened with Pesach Shefar. What about Kashras? So the, the diet was far easier to maintain. They weren't necessarily going to provide meat for a prisoner. And the diets generally back in those days uh, were far more Basic. mundane. So, yeah. Now, despite all he went through in those seven years, he does on occasion, I mean, on one occasion he wrote, Shevach v'halel to Hashem, praised Hashem, who has not removed his chesed from me, and even in darkness has been a light. He hasn't abandoned me for all the years that I've been here. Boruch goimel chasodim toivim in this fortress. Incredible. Yeah. I guess the most related fact about the imprisonment of the Maram was his refusal to be ransomed. Yep. Can you expound on that? Well, it's actually more complicated than assumed because, you know, we're generally told or we read that because of the exorbitant sum asked by the authorities, the Maram refused to allow himself to be uh, redeemed based on the uh, Talmudic ruling that we don't ransom captives for more than their value for the sake of public good. And this is, in fact, broadly quoted, even, in fact, regarding uh, hostages in Israel today, based on that Gomorrah and Gittin. But the fact that it was used with regards to the Maram 
is not so clear. In the 16th century, the Marshal, basing himself on this Gomorrah in Gittin, writes, I heard about our teacher, Romeo of Rothenburg. The communities wished to pay, but he, Romeo, didn't allow this. He said that it's not permitted to ransom captives for more than they're worth. I am astonished, says the Marshal because he was a particularly great Torah scholar, and there were none like him in Torah and piety in his generation, and it's permissible to ransom him for all the money in the world. And if due to his own humility, he didn't consider himself to be an exceptionally great scholar, he should have at any rate considered the amount of Torah learning that would be lost. He himself wrote that he sat in darkness without Torah, and he lamented his lack of works of the Poiskim and Tosfas, so how could he not have considered the sin of the loss of Torah since the public needed him? So the Marshal says that this idea that is taught does not make any sense. And in the will of uh, Rav Yehuda, the son of the Rosh, there is no mention of the Maram's refusal to be ransomed, and it would have made it into his writing. What he writes is, he talks about his father, the Rosh, the reason for the departure of my father, the Rosh, from Germany was the seizing of Romer of Rothenburg, and the congregations of Ashkenaz uh, wanted to ransom him for a great fortune. But the ruler, in other words, the king, refused to accept any guarantor other than my father. And before the sum was divided up amongst the communities, Romeo of Rottenberg died in captivity. And the ruler said that since he died before he could be released from prison, my father, the Rosh, is responsible and that he has to pay the money. So the Rosh fled Ashkenaz. This is recorded by his son. So, you know, he doesn't talk about the uh, refusal to be ransomed either. And this document that we mentioned that was found in 1616 describes the captivity of the Maram. doesn't talk about his refusal either. So what did happen? You're saying we're back to square one that the authorities didn't allow it? Ah, that's for next week. Thank you very much indeed, Rabbi Hirsch. That was a fascinating historical analysis. And now it is with great pleasure that we welcome Reb Schrager Feivel Zimmern to our podcast. For those unacquainted, Rabbi Zimmern is the Av Basin and Rov of the Federation of London. Previously, he was the Rov of the Gateshead Killer for approximately 10 years, which is where I first had the schuss to meet him. And prior to that, he was a Rov in Monsey, New York, and a member of the Basin there. So we invited the Rav to this series to share some of his vast knowledge of Shulchan Aruch and trace some of the halachic decisions of the Maram and the wider outcomes in halacha nowadays. Over to you, Rabbi Zimman. Thank you for joining us. Okay, good evening. Now that you've heard the fascinating history of the Maram Rottenberg, I would like to take a few of his unique halachic rulings in Cheshen Mishpat, the laws of financial matters, and I'm going to concentrate on rulings where he has an individual opinion against all other opinions and show how we either follow that opinion or at the very least take it seriously in account. The Gemara in Bava Metzia says, if you hire a worker and then you back out on him before he starts working, all he can do is have complaints. He's entitled to complain about you, but he has no claim against you if there was no contract signed. The Gemara says that that's only if he didn't start working or he didn't start traveling towards the work. 
if he has traveled towards the work or he has began to work, that is considered a binding contract and you have to pay him. This is a Shulchan Aruch in Chayshim Mishpat, Simen Shin Lamed Gimel. In Sif Beis in Shulchan Aruch, there's a qualifying factor on this. He says this halacha, that if you didn't start to work and you back out, you have no debt to the employee, is only if he wouldn't have had another job. But if he had another job and he gave that job up because of your offer, then you have to compensate him for the loss of the other job. You don't have to compensate him fully because he didn't have to work, but he has to be compensated. And this halacha is based on a question of Taisvis. The Gemara, when the Gemara says that if you back, the employer backs out on the employee, he has no claim against him, he says, what do you mean? You're a mazik. It's called dina degarmi. It's almost direct causation of loss because the worker could have worked somewhere else that day. And because of this question, Taisus says, and the Rush Paskins like that, that it must be talking about a worker who does not have another job. And therefore, he didn't lose anything because of you. Because if he would have lost another job because of you, you have to compensate him. The Ritva says the same, same psak for a different reason. He says when you offer someone a job, you act as a guarantor that he's going to have his livelihood. And if because of your offer he loses some other form of livelihood, you have to pay that as a guarantor. The Nesiva Samishpat says that this is a takana, an ordinance of the Chachamim, that you have to compensate someone for lost work. This is found in the Shulchan Aruch, Simen Shin Lamed Gimel, Sif Beis, a ruling with no one who disagrees on it. And to give you more contemporary examples, let's say you hire a taxi to take you to an airport, and then for whatever reason you get a ride there. So you call up the taxi and you cancel. And the taxi says, but I had a different order to take someone else to the airport, compensate me for my loss. You make an appointment by a doctor and you block up a half hour of his time or in a lab. And then you cancel. And the doctor says, or the laboratory says, well, we had another patient we could have served in that time. The Shulchan Aruch says, you're going to have to compensate them. If you look in the Ksais which is one of the most fundamental svarim on Chaysh Mishpat and in the yeshiva world, he says, although this is a halacha in Shulchan Aruch, which nobody disagrees with, nevertheless, I'm not sure that we paskin like this, because the Maram of Rottenberg disagrees. The Maram of Rottenberg was asked a similar question, and he says you don't have to compensate the person because there are no damages. He didn't lose anything. What he lost is future income, future profit, or potential of income. That is not considered damages. And the Ksayi says, although the Shulchan Aruch says it without any question, and all the other Paiskim agree with the Shulchan Aruch that you're going to have to compensate them for their loss of income, since the Marama Rottenberg, who has his unique stature in Jewish history, said you're not obligated to, you cannot force a person to pay this settlement. Whether we actually paskin like this based on the Maram Rottenberg or not, 
is a dispute amongst contemporary Batidinim. Furthermore, some might take into account why did the employer back out? Did, did you cancel the taxi because you got a ride? Or did you cancel the taxi because the plane was can- your plane was canceled? However, it shows the uniqueness of the Marama Rottenberg that the Ksesachishin is willing to rule following his opinion against everything else because of the uniqueness of his opinion. Just the logic behind it, you would think that if the tax driver has that, I had another order, that person could have canceled too. So there's no guaranteed income that he's losing. He could have canceled, or maybe not. Let's say it will prove that the other order actually went to the airport with a different taxi. Right. Now let's go to a totally different topic. Historically, coins had two values, a face value, like our coins, and an intrinsic value, because they were actually made of silver and gold. Now there were some people who would take a coin and what's called, they clipped the coin. They would rub off some of the silver on it, still use it for its face value, and then sell the silver separately. Rabbi Hirsch, actually, the first podcast we ever did was called Scandals in the UK, and it was about some people who used to do this as a as scandalous. But yeah, sorry to interrupt. Okay, so now, the government found out about these coin clippers, and made them swear that they're never going to do again. These people weren't so easily deterred, and they came to ask the Marama Rottenberg, do we have to follow our own shvua? Do we have to keep our own oath? Because the Gemara in the Durham says that if a tax collector falsely wants to collect taxes from you, you can swear falsely and say that you're not obligated. The Marama Rottenberg took a very dim view of their question, and he gave them three answers. One, the Gemara is talking about a tax collector that has no right to collect taxes, or he taxes people arbitrarily and capriciously. Here we're talking about a government who has a right to insist on the value of their coins. Number two, put aside the shua, put aside the oath that you made. It's plain geneva. You're stealing from people when you clip their coins and they think it's worth more than it's really worth. And finally, he says that I think that these people should be publicly beaten because they are harming the Jewish community. When such coins circulate within the community, it brings the community into disrepute and they might even be all investigated and accused of clipping coins. And therefore, they should be, rather than being applauded, they should be beaten. Can I just ask on the first thing the Rolf said from the Maram, who decides what's called a correct tax of the government? If the government is entitled to rule, and it's applied fairly to everyone, this is the Gemara in the Dharam Davchavches of Dina de Malchus Dina. Mm. The contemporary example of this is a Ramah in Simon Shin Peiches Sif Yud Beis. The Ramah says, if people are counterfeiting money, Jewish people are counterfeiting money, the Jewish community is allowed to hand them over to the authorities. You should warn them first to stop, and if they do not stop, you should hand them over to the authorities. What is the basis of this halacha of handing people over to the authority? If you look in the Mechaber in Sif Yud Beis, it talks about someone who is a Meitzer Lerabim, someone who is a public menace. 
And it says, someone who is a public menace should be handed over to the authorities. People who steal, people who curse others, hurt others, child abusers, they should be handed over to the government. However, it's interesting to note, when the Ramah quotes this psak, which is based on the Maram, he says you should warn the person first. The Mechabra, when he says that a public menace should be handed over to the authorities, doesn't say anything about warning the people. And to explain this Ramah, I'll tell you a story. When one learns to be a Rav or a Dayan, besides learning text and book knowledge, one has to do shimush, or one has to intern by other senior Rabbanim to see how they operate. And one of the people I merited to intern by was called Rav Moshe Halbishtam, who's a famous Dayan in Yerushalayim. And someone once came into him and asked him the following question. When you come off Kvish Achad, which is the road from Tel Aviv to Yerushalayim, there is a very sharp U-turn to go into the neighborhood of Givat Shaul. Now, you cannot make the first right, because the first right, the traffic goes in the direction out of Givat Shaul. So you have to make the second right, go all the way up the block, and then make another right to go down into the neighborhood of Givat Shaul. Well, there was a person who lived on the first block, and he habitually would get off the highway and drive the wrong way up a one-way street to get to his house, simply to save himself time. And they came into Rav Halberstam when I was interning them, interning there, and they asked him a question. What should they do with this person? Should they tell his wife? Should they tell his employer? Or should they tell the police? <laughs> and Rav Halberstam smiled and said, I want you to go tell him that Rav Halberstam said that if you, don't, if you do it once again, Rav Halberstam Paskin, that they should tell his wife, his employer, and the police. <laughs> and after that, he turned to me, and he said, this is what the Ramah meant based on the Maram Rottenberg. It's interesting to note that a public menace, it doesn't say anywhere that you have to warn him. By the case of the counterfeiter, it says you do have to warn him. And he explained as follows. A public menace is doing an act of damaging other people. A counterfeiter is not interested in harming other people, has no intent to harm other people, just wants to enrich themselves. That's number one. Number two, the harm to other people is just a possibility. It's not automatic, nor is it direct. Therefore, the Ramah, based on the Maram Rottenberg, although he's quoting someone else, says you should warn him first. But if he doesn't stop, he is a maitzalirabim. Same thing here. The person driving the wrong way up a one-way street is not trying to harm anyone, not trying to harm any children playing there. He's just trying to get home quicker. The harm is a potential harm. He drives slowly. He's a careful person. But nevertheless, since it could potentially cause harm to the public, you have to warn him. And if you don't, and he doesn't listen to the warning, hand him over to the authorities whether the authorities are the government or his wife or maybe his employer, try all three. Would we consider anti-Semitism as being a mazik l'rabim? Because it can have devastating effects, but it's not actual damage? Because I'm thinking of an example like tax evasion. It's not direct damage to other people, but that can lead to authorities to possibly... Tax evasion has many different levels, but counterfeiting is the example of something that will cause it. 
Now let's go to a totally different part of halacha. When you have a din Torah, you have a claimant who calls a defendant or a respondent to a din Torah. Who gets to choose the venue? And the halacha is halach achar hanitva. It is the defendant that chooses the venue, as found in Simen Yudalit Sif Aleph. Why does the defendant get to choose the venue? Why isn't it a mutual agreement? And there are different reasons given. The Marie Ben Lev says that this is for the benefit of the claimant. Because if the claimant allows the respondent to choose the venue and the respondent loses the dentire, then he's going to feel he was heard, was listened to, and he's going to listen to it. If the claimant is going to try to, to force the respondent to come to the besn of his choice, the respondent might feel that he wasn't heard. The Marashtam says it's simply a takana and ordinance that people shouldn't fight. Otherwise, you'll have a never-ending argument about jurisdiction and venue and never get to the case itself. The Knesset Hagdaila says that this is a takana to help the respondent because it shouldn't cost him money. If you go to the bezin of, let's say, the city where the claimant lives, historically there was only one bezin in every town, so they must have been living in different towns, and it'll cost them travel expenses. And the respondent, the chazal wanted to save the respondent travel expenses. The Vilnagan says, based on a phrase found in the Gemara, man dekov asya. If something hurts you, your tooth hurts you, you'll go to the dentist. Dentist is not coming to you. That is the basis for hamitzi mechaveri olavaraya, that the burden of proof is upon the claimant. Same thing over here. The claimant wants the dentera. The respondent is not interested in it at all. He's very happy the way things are. And therefore, if something hurts you, you better go to the dentist yourself. This is a halacha, everyone agrees on it. The Mechabras quotes a Gemara that says that there's one exception to the rule. If the claimant lent money to the respondent, and the claimant says, I would like to go to the Bezden Agadol, I would like to go to a greater Bezden, the claimant has a right to do so. This is based on the Pasuk, Eved Leiva Leish Malva, a borrower is indebted to the lender. The lender didn't have to lend the money. And therefore, if the lender says that I would like to go to a bigger bezin, you can do so. And again, this is a Gemara, a halacha that nobody disagrees with. If you look in the Tshuvas of the Merama Rottenberg, this is Tshuva 394. They have exactly this case. The claimant lent money to the respondent and the respondent said, I want to go to the Bezden of Rothenburg, where the Maram was thereof. The claimant said, well, I am lent you money, and I would like to go to the Beis Havad, to a greater Bezden, a superior court in Marienburg. And Maram Rothenburg answered that the Talmud says that the claimant in this particular case is right, because he lent money. However, at present, an ordinance of the community prevails to the effect that where an authoritative court exists, no litigant may insist on taking his case before the Beis Havad. Therefore, the litigants of Rothenburg can choose the local court, which happens to be him. Now, here again, you have a Gemara, 
And the Gemara says clearly, and the Shulchan Aruch says clearly, that a lender can choose the venue. Comes along the Maram Rothenberg and says, no, it's not so. The reasoning for the Maram Rothenberg is found in the Marik. One, there are no such great bate dinim today. The local bezin is just as good as the more prestigious bezin. Number two, he says, there are many claimants who will make a claim and say they want to go to a faraway bezin so as to squeeze a settlement out of the respondent. If you think that this is new legal tactics, this exists in the 1200s already. People sued to force a settlement which was unjustified. And he said, I'm afraid this is what's happening. Number three, travel was dangerous at that time. Now, it's interesting to note that this is a Gomorrah, the only one who says that one doesn't have to follow this is the Marama Rottenberg. Now, how did the Marama Rottenberg override or abrogate a Gomorrah? And the answer is found in the words, in ordinance of the communities. Marama Rottenberg was not arguing on the halachic logic. He said a community has a right to make a takana, an ordinance, which applies for the members of this community. And I and other local communities have made this ordinance, which is that all Dine Terra will be local where the respondent lives. The proof of this is that if you look in the Chuvis Chikike Lev, there's a great Svardik Paisik, he says, although the Ramah says, based on Maram Ratenberg, it doesn't apply today, but since it was a Takana of the Maram Ratenberg, it only applies to members of Ashkenazic Jewry of which Ram Rottenberg was of the foremost leaders. Svardic Jewry do not have to abide by this takana, and therefore, till this very day, within Svardic Jewry, the lender can choose to say, I want to go to a greater bezden. So I've given you some ideas of the uniqueness of Maram Rottenberg taking three cases where he is either the only person who says this salacha, or he's the only person saying salacha, and he's arguing on everyone else, and nevertheless his opinion is either followed or certainly respected and taken into account when we pass in cases in Chesha Mishpat. Have a good night. Thank you so much, Rabbi Zimman. really did display what broad halachic shoulders he had. And thank Rabbi Hirsch for before. It really was an honor to host you here. Rabbi Zimman is a close friend of JLE and a rabbinic consultant on all the various questions that come up. So thank you for taking the time. And as usual, please send any questions, any feedback, any reviews to podcasts at jle.org.uk. And looking forward to see you next week, Rabbi Hirsch, for part two. <laughs>